0: You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. I'm Anna Wells, and with me today are Jeff Rehnke and Andy Zall, and we're the editors of Manufacturing.net and Industrial Equipment News. We each have about 15 years of experience covering the industry of manufacturing. Every week, we cover the five biggest stories, and we talk about the implications that those stories have on the industry moving forward. Uh, if you can, please like, subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast, um, give us a review if you can, positive, please, <laughs> on whatever platform you use. And finally, if you want to email the podcast, you can do so with email the podcast in the subject line, uh, jeff, Anna, or Andy at IEN.com. Uh, we are live some Fridays at one thirty, <laughs> some Fridays at other times like today. Um, you can subscribe on YouTube at uh, at IN Magazine to get this sent to your inbox when we start. Before we get going, we're going to start with a word from our sponsor, Red Zone.
1: Manufacturers are facing extraordinary challenges today. With labor shortages, supply chain disruptions, and a changing workforce, complex industrial technology doesn't cut it on the front line. What's needed is a new way of working that will not only meet throughput goals, but change the shop floor culture to one of winning Where every worker feels they play a part in achieving the company's goals for success. What's needed is Redzone, the connected workforce solution.
0: All right, Redzone's connected workforce software solution enables manufacturers to empower frontline teams in production, maintenance, and quality to contribute their full potential and achieve company goals around productivity and throughput. Red Red Zone software enables manufacturers, both big and small, to boost their plants' productivity, increase employee engagement, and lower turnover. Thanks, Red Zone. All right. I'm going to kick it off to Andy, who's going to walk us through our fifth most popular story of the week. Andy.
2: Playing the role of moderator this week a little bit.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) Just Um, a little bit. Yes. Um, Our uh, number five story of the week, plant-based meat company, is spoiling. Uh, Beyond Meat uh, has had a rough go of it lately. Sales dropped last year and revenue fell along with restaurant demand early this year. Um, so as a result, the company slashed prices. Uh, it sold more product, but revenue still fell. And as the company is, was preparing to share its second quarter results, uh, analysts were uh, projecting it to fall even further. Uh, John Baumgartner, an analyst, told Reuters that part of the problem was product adoption. Um, the initial excitement around Beyond Meat has passed, and it needs more product innovation uh, and better tasting products, he says, to uh, to keep that momentum going. Uh, now, it's had product tests at McDonald's, KFC, Taco Bell, and Panda Express that didn't evolve into a broader launch. Uh, and Dunkin', Hardee's, and AW and have already discontinued their lines of Beyond. Uh, inflation and supply chain problems also pose threats. Uh, The company hopes to be able to weather the storm and rebound before it becomes just another flash in the pan, it says here. Um, So (laughs) I I wasn't here for the, uh, what was it, a KFC uh, little taste test you guys did? uh I missed that one somehow, so uh, I will have to defer to you guys for your Beyond Meat takes.
0: Ooh, I have a take. Go ahead. So I have been a vegetarian for 25 years almost, which is... it's hard to even imagine. But um, <clears throat> one thing I've learned in that time is that vegetarians, I think, tend to have a pretty diverse set of reasons as for why they are vegetarians. Um, some it's a moral choice. Sometimes it has to do with sustainability. Some people are grossed out by meat. Um, anyway, um, I, I, th- I think the industry widely for a very long time targeted vegetarians as if they were just looking for health food at all times, like they just wanted to be healthier. I don't think that that's accurate. Um, and so I can't speak for this entire community. Uh, <laughs> but I will say that when companies started to put some money into meat alternatives and sort of get creative, it was exciting for me personally, because um, I can't tell you how many like mushy, tasteless black bean burgers I've had <laughs> in my life, just because that was the only option, you know. And um, and and so, like, I, I think that it's important that suddenly the industry, the food industry is is understanding that, you know, like 10% of Americans identify as vegan or vegetarian. They have wallets too, right? Like, this is important um, sector to target. That being said, the hype around this industry has been ridiculous. And I think it's, you know, it's exciting that they're making a better tasting uh, veggie burger, but... And I actually really like Beyond Burgers, but they're expensive, first of all, and I don't buy them often for that reason. Um, I think they also emerged during this strange time where everyone and their brother in the food industry decided that they needed to go develop a plant-based division. There's a ton of competition out right now, and these companies are trying to scale, and they're spending a ton of money on R&D. Um, They're spending a ton of money on marketing. They have inconsistent distribution. As you mentioned, like they're working these rollouts with all these um, restaurants. Like that takes a lot of resources, right? So I feel like you can look at this story and think like, nobody wants this product. That's why it's failing. I don't think that it's true. That's true. I think it's a little bit more complex than that. Um, People are cutting back on their grocery spending right now because of inflation. Um, I know that ingredient supplies are are, you know, people are losing their suppliers and they're having to spend more to get the ingredients that they used to have a you know, more consistent supply of. There's a lot of factors that are, are going into making this specifically a very hard market to be in for beyond right now. And as you mentioned, they are selling more product. But um, I just think that the, the deck seems to be stacked against them right now. They probably have very high operating costs. So, um, you know, if you look at what they're saying, too, they're blaming inflation, they're blaming recession fears, they're blaming interest rates. And I think that is largely true. Obviously, they have some kinks to work out with their rollout, but I don't think that this speaks exactly to a a market issue for beyond rather more um, business variables that are very challenging for every company.
3: I mean, I would agree with a lot of that. Starting with the thing that we can sometimes <laughs> overlook when we're looking at a food product is how does it actually taste? Mm-hmm. I think what I saw online is people are a little bit all over the board when it comes to Beyond. Now, you've had – I've had the Beyond Burger. Mm-hmm. I've had the Beyond Brat. Yeah. Um, I don't th- – I think they taste good, but they do not taste like what they're supposedly replacing. If you've had a burger, if you've had a brat, mm-hmm. these things are not close, in my opinion. Right. Now, I can still put these things on a bun and throw a bunch of onions and other mm-hmm. condiments on them and they taste great, but it's not the same. And the reason I bring that up is because one of the pieces of research that Beyond put out there is they felt that their market, 70% of their market could potentially be people who are looking to reduce how much meat they're eating. Right. Yep. And I can appreciate that, but if I'm looking to reduce the amount of red meat that I'm eating, I don't know. Chicken or fish is a lot more appealing than a Beyond product to me as a meat eater, okay? So I think that's one thing that I think they – I don't know if they paid enough attention to that, how different it really is. I think for if you're a vegetarian and you haven't had this stuff for however long, yeah, it probably tastes (laughs) – well, however, you remember it tasting, it's probably pretty similar. I'm My guessing. My husband
0: says this to me too. He's like, this does not taste good. You just don't remember. <laughs> it I'm like, right.
3: Well, like when we had those, the chicken from KFC, that was that, was that beyond?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um,
3: it did. It tasted good, but it did not taste like chicken. It mm-hmm. tasted like a different type of, I don't know, for deep fried vegetable or, or something like that. Um, but we had people in here too who hadn't had chicken in a while and they thought it was great. Yeah. So. I think that, is a, that presents a very tough competitive situation for Beyond. The other thing is, and you touched on it, everybody's getting into this. I mean, we mm-hmm. think of Beyond and Impossible as the two big ones, but then you've got people like Nestle, Kellogg's, other big food companies that are getting into this. Kellogg's in particular is putting a lot of resources into their Morningstar Farms line. Mm-hmm. We talked about that, and they're sort of their restructuring. We think of Kellogg's as cereal. Well, now they're getting into all these other areas, and they're pumping a ton of resources into it. Combine that with the fact that, like you said, only 10% of the consumer base is a, is a vegetarian vegan by nature. So everybody else is already looking beyond that. So even though this is an interesting alternative, it's, um, I think there's just, like you kind of alluded to, man, you know, there's just a lot of market factors that
2: came into play here.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: <clears throat> so this report came out um, just kind of projecting what everyone thought was going to happen in their earnings report. Um, so that report uh, has since come out. And it's also come uh, with layoffs. They say they're going to reduce their uh, workforce 4%, which is about 40 jobs, to save about $8 million annually. Um, so revenue was down, but only 1.6%. Uh, the company uh, also noted uh, that it saw its second largest quarter ever in terms of net revenues um, and solid progress on reducing uh, some uh, operating and manufacturing conversion costs. Um, Its CEO said that for the balance of the year, they're focused on intensifying OPEX and manufacturing cost reductions um, and uh, some other sort of uh, activities here. Prime market activities across our global strategic partners. A lot of uh, earnings report jargon that we're Mm -hmm. all quite familiar with. Um, They say they hope to emerge from the current economic climate leaner and stronger. And, of course, the current economic climate is, uh, well, nobody's really sure what's going on with that right now. So that remains to be seen. Um, but whatever it is, it, they want to be well positioned for the next chapter of growth, which is um, sounds familiar if you've read uh, earnings reports from companies that maybe aren't doing so hot lately. So um, we'll have to. <laughs> oh,
0: it's only up from here.
2: Yeah, we'll <laughs> have we'll have to see how they uh, how their uh, focus uh, turns out.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point too that Jeff brought up about um, you know targeting people who are trying to reduce their meat consumption. I wonder how much the Pricing factors right now demotivates that crowd, right? Like maybe if it's easier or it's more cost effective to do it, they will. But in you know when prices are up right now, maybe that's something that people table.
3: Well, it was interesting too because like with um, the brats, I bought those for my wife Mm -hmm. and put them on there, and again, they tasted fine, just not like the horrible you know combination of grease and fat that is a brat i mean it's Mm -hmm. just it's not the same but they were expensive and i didn't actually buy them until they went on sale they talked about the price reduction that was kind of part of it that ate Mm -hmm. into their their profits this quarter yeah um well like sort of contributed to that i guess yeah and do you know that when i had the beyond burger that was only the second time i ordered a burger that was not meat do you remember the first time that i had to do that i do because
0: yeah. uh, you lost a bet.
3: I did lose a bet. Uh,
0: and uh, I won that bet, Jeff. I remember. I,
3: I do remember having to
2: choke down whatever that god-awful patty was at at the burger place. Yep, yep. Had I known I was doing this podcast and this story, I think I might have stopped for a, a Beyond uh, Breakfast Patty or something this morning because uh, uh, I feel a little left out. You've the, not uh, had any of it? no.
0: Oh, we're going to change not mor- that. I'm not
2: morally opposed. I just, uh, <laughs> yeah. I just haven't. Uh, I've certainly had the opportunity. I've just never capitalized on Let's it. Let's have so. a
0: barbecue right For now sure. in the studio.
2: Yeah, right now. Where That's does sound, the smoke go? Awesome. Get on yeah. it, production people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, Just there. cut a hole in the ceiling. There we go. Bring the grill in. <laughs> All right.
0: <laughs> Bring the grill in.
2: <laughs> Our fourth most popular story this week. Rivian sounds alarm on EV rebate changes. Uh, Senate Democrats uh, last week announced legislation, um, a sweeping package that uh, was has been fought over for years now since they uh, took control of Congress. Uh, It basically aims to combat climate change and rising health care costs, among a wide variety of other things. Um, One of those is that it would extend the nation's longstanding seventy five hundred dollar credit designed to encourage purchases of electric vehicles. Uh, But there's a catch. According to The Wall Street Journal, vehicles sold for more than eighty thousand dollars would no longer be eligible nor would buyers with household incomes of either $150,000 or $300,000 for married couples. Uh, Rivian's vehicles start below that mark, uh, but added features, the company says, would quickly push most of its sales well beyond that threshold. Uh, The bill would also eliminate the $200,000 vehicle cap. Um, So right now, uh, Tesla and General Motors are the two companies that have sold more than 200,000 EVs. They are not eligible for that rebate anymore. This would make them eligible once again, uh, bring that cost down. Uh, Brevian executives say the changes could prevent some buyers from going electric and asked for a two-year transition window to the new program. Um, The company eventually plans to offer a more affordable model that would qualify for that rebate, but it says it needs continued growth to ensure it can make those investments. Um, Where do you stand on the uh, high-end EV market getting uh, $7,500 rebates for vehicle purchases?
0: (laughs) I think I know where you stand on it. Um, I don't know. I think there's quite a few automakers that are going to be happy about the extension of the EV tax credit, because as you mentioned, GM and Tesla have both um, been effectively eliminated from that program for a while. Um, And they have been lobbying intensively for that change for years, you know? Um, And so I almost wonder if for them, the benefit of these changes are going to really outweigh some of the restrictions that they're putting on. Um, You know, you can see why they... Want this credit extended? They've laid a lot of groundwork in developing these EVs. They've also done a lot in terms of um, generating market acceptance. Like if you look at what Tesla has done for buy-in of EVs, they've done a lot, and that's going to help other automakers in the end, right? So I can see why Tesla's like, well, hey, wait a second, you know, why are we not included anymore? Um, and and also like GM, you know, like they wasted a lot of I I shouldn't say wasted, but like they used up a lot of their credit on their market entry vehicles like the bolt and the volt which were not as profitable for them so as they scale and then they also have this additional motivator for people to buy the payback of that credit is arguably much better as they scale right right? so for them too i think they feel like hey we you know we broke some ground here and now we're not getting our, our fair share of this so i understand why uh they feel like they're entitled to that um as far as the, the stipulations on higher earners, um, you know, we've we've seen the data around EV buyers and prospective buyers, and we know that people who have higher household incomes are more interested in EVs, obviously because they're hitting the market at a little bit higher price point, though that is starting to come down already, we're seeing, um, to be more on par with a, a traditional vehicle. But um, if you look at the income caps, like, and we're probably talking AGI here, I'm assuming, like like three hundred k or more for married couple that applies to like four percent of the U.S. population. I mean, you really have a lot of market to work with there. I know that they're mad about like the the eighty thousand dollar overall cost of the vehicle thing, and that I feel like maybe with some lobbying that could be massaged or amended or something in a way. Um, the buffer, I don't know like what the point of that is exactly. They just want to get some sales in quick and then, and then be kneecapped. I'm not sure. Well,
2: they're opening a new factory to produce this lower cost vehicle. So that oh, might, get I them. Yep. that might, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but that might get them, uh, get them a nice little bridge to when that thing is uh, almost ready to open.
0: So. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I can see where they're frustrated. And to be honest with you, like if, if the U.S. federal government is going to put all these restrictions on what automakers can produce and sell and what Americans can buy, I kind of don't understand why they're not just like full force boosting the market in a way that it seems to me. I mean, like, since when have we shied away from giving uh, wealthy people subsidies and tax breaks? It's <laughs> not exactly like something that America doesn't do. So um, I don't know. I just like if it were me, like open the doors, open the doors, like make this as widespread as you can to improve adoption. Um, because it's not like it's working against other, other automakers. Now all the automakers are doing this, right? There's not, you're not like putting one in a corner, choosing winners and losers. You already did that. You already made that choice on, on, you know, making a certain percentage of these fleets have to be EV. So it's my opinion that they should just do more, but that's not my choice, right? You, I mean, <laughs> but it have, could be. This, it, is, your, this right. is your
3: platform. Adelaide. I'm going to run
0: for office. I'm going to run for the office, which is right over here my Swarms. office, right around the corner. Yep. Walk there probably. To hide yeah.
3: from all the feedback yeah. you're yeah. going to yeah. get from this. <laughs> no, I, like a lot of legislative actions, I think they got half of it right or they got some of it right. I think these caps they put on are interesting. 80 grand is a real interesting number because if you look at the Rivian options or the Rivian miles that they have out and their price points, the absolute base gets you under 80. If you put anything extra on there, Mm -hmm. you're way over that. So that number, I think, I think Rivian reading between the lines here a little bit, I I think that was intentional in some respects. If you've got some of these other automakers really lobbying for this legislation. I also, I don't like the caps on income for a couple of reasons. Number one, $300,000 for household income that's one thing here in Wisconsin. That means a lot. That means different things in New York and San Francisco.
0: Totally. So yeah.
3: I, I don't like those numbers. The other thing is we want to encourage everybody to get EVs, regardless of about how you feel about it or the environmental elements, all that, the writing's on the wall. The government wants it. The automakers want it. This is where we're trending. So why would we want to inhibit somebody who is willing to plunk down $110,000 for for a lucid air? We want them to do that because that money, not only does it get more EVs out there, but it also generates the funding that these companies need in order to develop the next innovative product or whatever the next iteration of these electric vehicles are. They need the funding to do it. So why would we want to inhibit that or not encourage it in any way, shape, or form? The part of the legislation that is great is extending these um, these caps in terms of when those EV credits go away. I think that's great. It should be getting rid of it. I think it's good. We talked about the Nissan LEAF going away. Mm-hmm. Well, Nissan maybe could use a lot of that that incentive that comes from purchasing an EV to develop other models. Yeah. Okay. It's the thing that leads to the thing. Again, why would we want to limit that? So, again, <laughs> they're trying. Mm-hmm. They. They got halfway there, but definitely got in their own way. And I think there is some influence, again, in setting some of those benchmarks to potentially take out some of the higher end EV players here.
2: Uh, this bill has a has an interesting history, as we we touched on here. So I'm I'm curious about not only the process of crafting it as a whole, but the cra- process of crafting this particular provision. I'm uh, interested in what went into that. I'm not sure we'll ever know. Um, but I'm uh, I'm kind of with you guys on this. If they want to. Lyft uh, just keep the incentives very broadly. They probably should be doing more to incentivize electric vehicle purchases. So I don't know why we have to means test everything here.
3: The thing that's interesting is actually, you know, Rivian right now, they're talking about three vehicles, right? They got the truck, which definitely is not going to, I mean, no truck is going to probably fall within this price point. It's going to be more than 80 to start out with. The SUV, which they're still sort of figuring out, Mm -hmm. the base model is around 70. You can go from there. But the delivery vehicle, like the stuff they're making for Amazon, the ones that they've delivered for Amazon, those are actually well below this cap. MSRP on those starts at about 60. So it is kind of interesting that those would be the ones that actually would, under the current provisions, still qualify qualify mm-hmm. for that tax credit. So Interesting. Yeah.
0: So uh, we we've all agreed that tax breaks for the rich is which is the podcast platform.
2: If it uh I like where this it, is going, if it switches from uh from EVs to EVs from gas, I think uh, I think we're okay with that.
0: Yeah, I think we Tax are.
2: breaks for the rich if it benefits the environment. How about that?
0: I'm with you. I am.
2: Mm, it have to benefit the environment? Jeff. Oh, sorry. Get out of here. Sorry. Um, I should also mention that this, uh, like everything in, in D.C. right now, it has to walk a very fine line. So uh, this is not a done deal by sure. any stretch of the imagination. So we'll have to see what happens to the bill overall and uh, maybe to particular provisions as they move forward. All right. Our third most popular story. Hershey warns it can't meet Halloween demand. Uh, the Mr. Goodbar and Crackle Maker is already anticipating supply to fall short for the fall holiday. The reason... Uh, is that Americans still are apparently eating more candy than usual. Because Hershey uses the same production lines for seasonal goods, as does for year-round products, uh, a bottleneck is on its way. Uh, The company's CEO says it made a tough decision to prioritize everyday on-shelf availability rather than seasonal uh, availability for Halloween candy. Uh, High prices for dairy and a lack of available ingredients are also hampering the company, and many of the problems, according to executives, stem from the war in Ukraine. How will you guys weather the chocolate shortage? I'm going to say one thing right now, Hershey's. If this
3: somehow impacts (laughs) production and availability of Reese's Pieces or peanut butter cups, heads will roll. (laughs) Just want to put that out there.
0: If it has to be shaped like a pumpkin for you to eat it, the Reese's? Okay, No,
3: not at all. But those, they got to be there.
0: They have more peanut butter in them. They're better in in all regards so
3: absolutely especially the peanut butter on peanut butter ones that we tried i still can't find more of
0: those yeah those
2: are good the ideal formula is the little foil wrapped ones that's the perfect ratio of chocolate to peanut butter i know they're smaller but you can Mm -hmm. just eat more of them and that resolves that problem (laughs) well done yeah that's just that's why they pay the big bucks right there (laughs) yep yep no i think you know hershey it's
3: interesting i think they're facing a number of different cost related challenges here um and they all do relate to production, surprisingly. I mean, we look at dairy prices. Um, when you look at milk, it's up about 16%. Butter, up about 16% as well in the past year. Anybody who's buying groceries has experienced those. I didn't realize milk was on average that high, that much more. Um, but obviously, that's going to impact a company like Hershey's and, and when the products they're putting out. The other thing is, we talked about a Hershey plant a couple months ago that was looking to unionize. Right now, there's are seven main manufacturing facilities in the US. Only two of them have unions. But as we cover these trends, all these workers, especially in food, man, food processing, food manufacturing, they're wanting to get paid. They put their time in, especially over the last year and a half, two years when everybody else was shut down. You have to think because in one part, you're thinking, well, if you need more product out there, just increase production, make more stuff. Well, mm-hmm. the, if the ingredients are going up and then you're potentially paying workers more because either they're unionizing and getting together collectively to negotiate labor rates or the fact that they just want to get paid better. I think some of those things are definitely impacting Hershey's decisions here, even mm-hmm. though Halloween has got to be just like a cash cow for them.
0: For so, sure. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like they would have to add lines, you know, based on what right. they're saying is that they're using the same lines for this type of production. They've been to balance balancing that in the past and, and are not able to do so now. Um, you know, recently we we talked about how some businesses were discovering that assumptions they made about pandemic specific demand. Coming permanent, like a new normal. Yeah, um, we're kind of slapped down with reality that <laughs> not much had changed in their industry. In the end, Amy's Kitchen we talked about yeah. um, opening up a new plant and then having to shutter it within a year because people started to go back out. They started eating at restaurants again. Um, you know, the candy industry um, with Hershey kind of contending here that candy consumption has still been up since 2020 um, with n- no signs of changing. I guess if you can suffer through like the daily onslaught of horrible, outrageous and tragic events in the news cycle without a vice of any kind, then I'd like to know like what you're doing. <laughs> like I, I can just see like people just like sadly like eating peanut butter cups on their couch every night as I watch the news. Boozer um,
3: candy, right? Boozer
0: candy, right. Band um, name. <clears throat> um, and I and I also wonder too, like special occasion candy, like um, I don't know about you guys, but like, it seemed like uh during Halloween the last 2 years um my neighborhood like just pulled out all the stops. I think because everyone feels bad about like the pandemic and how terrible it's been for little kids. Like Easter baskets are getting bigger in my family. Like <laughs> Christmas stockings, Halloween, like everything is just like on a grander scale. I think because we're like we are so sorry that you are, got to wear a mask to school every day. I like can't see your friends. I don't know. You had to quit swimming. Um I, I feel like grandparents and parents like trying to make up for the pandemic, like that's real, you know, like that's really happening. I don't know how long that lasts. Right. Like, does it last forever? Yes. Uh, I don't know. I mean, like it seems like Hershey is maybe hedging their bet a little bit that this demand spike, you know, like maybe they're riding it out to just see if it's permanent versus like making a snap decision to add production when we don't know what the long term scope of this will be. Um you know, some, as we mentioned in the case of Amy's, they really paid the price when these pandemic trends were determined to be temporary. And so in my opinion, you know, Hershey is maybe just trying to take a more conservative approach. And if that means like leaving some business on the table um, because of that, uh, maybe that helps them down the road when they didn't uh, potentially overexpand to meet a demand that's not there forever.
3: According to my unofficial, unscientific research done by me. Yeah. Seventy five percent of all candy is purchased by grandparents for grandchildren. Oh
0: my God, it's ridiculous.
3: Like Yeah, it that does not stop. <sighs> that just keeps going. You're um you're just at the genesis of that journey right there. I'm so enjoying it. Yeah. That. I eat a lot of the kid, the kids' candy. It what I do is I like, I'm like,
0: here's a piece, and then I like hide it, and then just wait for them to forget about it.
3: You are better than me because I just ate it. That was me hiding
0: it. <laughs>
2: that's hiding. That's fine. Counts. That uh, hypothetical of uh, just eating chocolates on the couch just to get by on mm-hmm. the weeknights. That's may have hit a little close to home.
0: So. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, man. Um, no, not it's, sorry. Sad
2: doing it. sorry, kind of it's good this. to be tears rolling down your yeah. cheeks. It's so good just... to, to get some, some self-awareness once in a while. <laughs> uh, Hershey says it's going to be adding more manufacturing lines, hopes that it will be able to meet demand, uh, for Halloween and otherwise in the next couple of years. Other companies, uh, should be able to carry their weight, uh, to supply our nation's children, um, in a couple of months here. Um, one thing I wanted to address before we move on is uh, your usual host, David, uh, was concerned about an unusual angle. He's concerned um, about the level of discounted seasonal candy after Halloween.
0: Oh, and not being able to grab his weird, um, like, Brox mix yeah. at a 50% discount? Correct.
2: Well, because they're going to – supposedly
3: that is one of the companies that's supposed to benefit from this, Brox, which, I don't know, that might be their
2: – Singular, singular hope.
0: Yeah, I'm just that, since David,
2: grim Halloween if they're replacing. Yeah, since uh, David is
0: not here uh. to defend himself, and just gonna let all <laughs> of you know that he has very poor taste in candy. Like the <laughs> that's the house How that long gives
2: did it you, take us to get rid of the stuff he had last year? It took like six months. Yeah, like
0: the butterscotch discs and stuff. That's David's house. And the result
3: that. of that is his dentist has bought a vacation home on a lake <laughs> based on his dental bills.
0: <laughs> Sorry, David.
2: Not sorry. Sorry, David. Our second most popular story this week. Jeep closes its only Chinese plant. Uh, Stellantis is making some changes across the Pacific. Um, According to Bloomberg, the automaker has concerns over its Chinese operations. So CEO Carlos Tavares plans for the company to transition to an asset light strategy. That strategy includes closing the only Jeep plant on Chinese soil and terminating a 12-year partnership with China's state-owned Guangzhou Automobile Group. The plant made the Jeep Cherokee, Renegade Compass, and Grand Commander models, and the CEO says the closure was collateral damage from ongoing trade spats. He fears that political interference could cause the plant to fall victim to cross sanctions if China acts on rising tensions with Taiwan. Tavares also said a major shift in the Chinese market is causing foreign vehicle sales to fall. Namely, the company is tipping the scales in favor of its domestic automakers. The Guangzhou Automobile Group says the real reason Stellantis is abandoning the market is because it, quote, failed due to a, quote, a lack of respect for customers in the Chinese automobile market. So who do we side with here, Jeep or Beijing? First of all, Andy, how do you feel about
3: the term asset light? (laughs) That sounds like uh, the worst beer ever.
0: Asset light. (laughs) I'd try it. <laughs> oh, you just at board meetings and just, stuff. You
2: just
0: <laughs> hey, you guys want want Hot some asset life?
3: Pop <laughs> the top on this one, huh? Andy, I, I just want to get your take on that term,
2: though. I, it's not. I've been I've been a reporter for a long time. I've been covering B two B stuff for eight years. Can't say I've come across that one. Yeah, before. that's a new one.
3: Mm-hmm. New way of saying we just want less stuff, which for a manufacturer <laughs> means downsizing, closing stuff. Okay. <laughs> By the way, great job in pronouncing that company name. Could you do that again? Guangzhou. Guangzhou. I think that's right, but do not quote me on that. It is now. Okay. It's right. Good enough. Yeah, I would think these type of operating environments have got to be difficult when things are going well. We know GM and others have had success in these 50-50 splits, which basically, once China opened up domestic manufacturing within their border for for American companies, that's what it is. It's a 50-50 split with companies like this that are in part, owned by the government. So you are dealing with a different type of operating environment. And I actually kind of agree with the comments made by um, the um, the expert there in the Chinese auto market. I don't think that, that they were really paying attention here to what was going on with Stellantis. The vehicles that they're making there are SUVs. They're larger SUVs. When you look at the leading um, SUVs, if you will, that are selling in China, The top three are made by domestic Chinese manufacturers, and they're CUVs. They're smaller. They're they're, they're crossover utility vehicles. Then you've got the Honda CRV and the Tesla Model Y. The Tesla Model Y might be the largest of the top six because the sixth one is the Toyota RAV4. So these are all smaller types of SUVs. They're not Jeep Comanches. They're not. They're not. these not the vehicles that they're making there. I guess is what I'm trying to say. So I think they were kind of out of touch with the Chinese market. What I thought was kind of funny is in the the sort of the ramp down. Um, I think they actually made like two vehicles a month or something like that, oh. which I thought was really interesting. Like, why do you bother? Is it like two guys on an assembly yeah. line just going station to station, bumping out because they had the parts or something? I mean,
1: <laughs> kind of like, how does
3: that work? But um, so I, I think this was the writing's been on the wall for a while. What is interesting, if you look back a little bit, at one point, Stellanis was actually looking to have a bigger part in this business. They were trying to get an additional 25 percent ownership in it. They must have seen things definitely going sideways, was not going to be saved. I think they threw the, the relationship was probably difficult not the primary reason they ended up shutting this factory down.
0: <clears throat> I agree with Jeff. I think that maybe they're not um, they're not saying just how precarious and and difficult this relationship yeah. was. Um, you know, I, obviously Stellantis was dealing with a big ball of wax considering uh, how this was received by their partner. And I think it's a good reminder of how some of these global operations are viewed. You know, you see these as like profitable opportunities but they do come with some risks as we see in this case and um you know if you look at like not only the economic policies in china that favor these domestic automakers um which apparently didn't include this joint venture um (laughs) and and you wonder if you know did Stellantis think it would and then it ended up not i like i don't know why but um But obviously, they're also worried about getting kind of tariffed into oblivion. If you look at uh, the global stage politically right now, the situation with Taiwan is really heating up. Um, You know, Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan recently. It very, very much angered the Chinese government. They were doing missile tests. Um, I don't see this as a situation that's improving. Um, (laughs) And so, uh, you know, when you add all that into this uh, clearly contentious relationship, Uh, that they have with GIG, which when, when their first response is uh, to Stellantis saying they're shutting down is that Stellantis failed. Like that's the words of a partner that was maybe blindsided or angry or both. Um, This does not sound like a calculated business decision that involved both parties. Um, So I think, you know, to your point, I think that relationship was maybe in worse shape than was being articulated here.
3: But don't you think Stellantis is on the the hook somewhat? Again, they were making the Cherokee, the Renegade, the Compass, and the Grand Commander. These are big vehicles.
0: Sure, but do you, I mean, how much of an incentive was, like, the government providing to buy those? You know, you said the top three were domestic automobiles. I mean, maybe people are buying them because they're getting a huge break on them. I don't know.
2: No, fair point. Um, Tavares, uh, he said this decision, again, referencing how, how, troubled this relationship was. He, he said the decision was rooted in broken trust with its partner. Um, and he mentioned the growing risk of operating factories in China because its politicians are increasing meddling in business. Uh, but he also admitted that the business is racking up losses. So it's a mix. It's uh, I, I wonder if I mean, this is the largest car. It's the largest market in the world it's the largest car market in the world. So I, I wonder what kind of long term ramifications this could have. That's a good
3: call. I mean, especially if they're trying to get into EVs. Again, China is the biggest market, like you said. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, they said they're still going to sell in China. They're just, you know, all that has to be imported in. And they think, I think that that's going to be less volatile than worrying about what the tariffs could do to them. I'm not sure how that will work out for them in the end. We'll see. Yeah,
2: we'll have to see. All right. Our top story for the week. GM to punish exorbitant car flipping. Auto consumers are running into yet another roadblock, markups. Automakers have watched as high-demand vehicles are quickly resold by their initial buyers at markups described as exorbitant. GM is angry about it and has a plan, it says, to stabilize gouging that specifically targets consumers. In a letter to dealers, GM detailed plans to penalize consumers who try to flip their vehicles. If buyers of certain high-demand cars, or trucks, or whatever, resell their vehicles within 12 months, they will be barred from placing future orders or reservations. Uh, the restrictions would apply to the 2023 Cadillac Escalade V or five, not sure, Chevrolet Corvette Z06 and GMC Hummer EV pickup and SUV. The president of GM North America said the practice both hurts the customer experience and damages GM's brand. How do we uh, how do we think this particular strategy is going to play out?
0: Uh, you know, I think it's interesting. Uh, when we kind of volley between the term consumer and the term unauthorized reseller, because I think that kind of um, w- how you see this person, this flipper, it might be how you view um, what GM is doing here. Cause we've seen the response to this publicly. It seems like it's a little bit mixed. Like on the one hand, you can see GM's point of view. They're really not, I don't think targeting consumers, so to speak, rather people who are driving up the price of their goods on purpose, purposely, We've seen automakers publish or, sorry, punish dealers in the past for bad behavior. And that's sort of a similar consequence. They don't allow them the full inventory on a popular vehicle. um, So they can't get these high demand um, vehicles. But, you know, once this is out of the dealer's hands, like, how do you continue to have a hand in how these brand new or almost brand new vehicles are priced? And I think maybe the answer is you don't. And the reason I say this is because I can't think of very many industries outside of automotive where a manufacturer could wield this type of control after the sale. I mean, it's kind of a problem with consumer goods right now, especially in marketplaces like Amazon, where products that are not authorized to be sold are being sold by third parties. But unless you're involved in like IP theft or any other kind of legal issue, Amazon doesn't do very much, um, you know, and and manufacturers really have very little recourse unless that seller is like illegally using their logo or something running a commercial saying they're selling a car or whatever. Um, So they have to get creative. And I think this is obviously GM's way of doing this, but it's unlikely that they can take any kind of legal action outside of what they're doing right now, which is sort of company specific sanctions. Um, CarScoops reported in April on a sale of a GMC Hummer EV, which is one of the vehicles that is included in this notice um, that was resold with 800 miles on it for $275,000. And obviously I think GM is seeing this kind of stuff as missed opportunity because of course they want to be selling new vehicles to these buyers who have this kind of money to spend in a car. But I also saw a Chaco Taco on sale this week for $150. So that's, I mean, that's the free market, right? Like I don't, yeah. I, that's just, this is the the business. I don't know. I, I just don't see what what they can really do beyond what they're doing now.
3: Yeah. What kind of penalty are they going to leverage? What, what does that mean?
0: So they're saying, like, um, if you get busted doing this, uh, you are not allowed to place orders for new vehicles again. And you, they're for a year, right? For, for a year. For a year. And then they're also not letting, um, you no if you it's if you, if you sell it within a year yeah. they're not letting you place a new order.
2: Oh okay. And
0: then they're also prohibiting certain warranty transfers to make that sell I think like less appealing. Sure. sure. You lose your warranty then you might have be incentivized to buy new from your dealership and just wait for it but people can't wait.
3: Apparently, No, I mean, this is really interesting. I mean, typically it's kind of a joke, but you lose 15 to 20% of the value of a new car as soon as you drive it off the lot, right? Mm -hmm. That is traditionally, that's what Kelly Blue Book says, so on and so forth. It's just not the case anymore. I mean, just in looking at this, I went to where I bought in the last couple of cars, used a used car dealer, looked at 2021 models, what they're selling these vehicles for, and they've got like 35,000 plus miles. It's above the MSRP for when the car was new. Mm -hmm. So, to your point, Anna, how do you regulate this? How do you control this? Because I get trying to support your dealers, but then you're essentially alienating your customers. Plus, the process, that what are they going to do? Track VIN numbers and and everything else? I mean, the logistical nightmare that this could represent in alienating people, especially if you get something wrong. I mean, it's competitive enough out there. You've got enough choices in terms of where to buy your vehicle. These are unique when you look at specifically the Corvette and the Hummer. I mean, there isn't a lot of comparable vehicles out there. But if you piss somebody off after they just spent $80,000 on a new vehicle, I think they might try to figure something else out. Mm -hmm. So I think GM is definitely walking a thin line here. Um, I have a feeling it's a lot more... um, posturing than anything they're actually going to do. I think they just want to get out there and say, Hey guys, knock it off and see what happens You know, with that. One of the things I looked at too, I was kind of curious if you had to guess, what do you think, what vehicle do you think has the best resale value? 2022. So it's from Kelly blue book. They put a top 10 in terms of the vehicles that retain their value the best within over like course of five years. So you buy it this year, sell it in five years, which one's going to be closest to what you bought it for? This is before, I think they're using a lot of factors here that are before stuff got weird. Oh, okay. You know, like it's all off the charts now. Yeah. Like who knows? I would but say like
0: like maybe like a muscle car or a truck because they're just so popular. I was going to
3: guess the F-150. They're using all F-150? trucks. That's what I thought too. Mm-hmm. I would have thought the F-150 just because it sold. That one is actually eighth. I was really surprised. The top ones are the Toyota Tundra mm-hmm. is accordingly, Tony Kelly Blue Book retains their value the best. Followed by the GMC Sierra, the Toyota Tacoma, the Ford Maverick. Which is like a newer, smaller size truck from Ford, and then the uh, the Corvette is at f- tied for fourth. Mm. So, yeah, interesting mix of vehicles. But the Corvette again, what GM's trying to do in terms of people not selling it so quickly. So, yeah, it's the automotive. We've talked about this at
2: length. It's just in a new n- new era <laughs> exactly. in terms of used cars and everything else. This uh, this brought up a couple questions for me reading this story. The first. Mm. Was doesn't it just mean that GM should be selling these cars for more than they already are? I know car prices are insane, but doesn't this mean that they're not insane enough if they're turning these around so fast?
0: It's a good question, and I think you know back to the fine line. I mean, they would have to they have to look at though not like pricing themselves out of the larger market. You know, I mean, you would hate to lose cust. They're so competitive. You know, you'd hate to lose business to somebody else because you. Overdo it, but
3: I mean, it's more of a production issue, right? They just can't get enough of these vehicles out there. People are desperate for them, they don't want to go on the waiting list. They'll take something with more miles than they maybe would have bought before Mm -hmm. and pay
2: a premium for it. Okay, um, and the other one is they, Steve Carlisle, the, the president of GM North America, suggests this hurts their brand. I'm wondering if that's if you have a bad experience with this, sure, but I mean, if they're having this kind of resale value, yeah. this kind of demand. Yeah.
0: That's not the reason. Yeah. The reason is they want that money. Yes. <laughs> but he's not going to say that.
3: No, that sounds worse. Wait a minute. Are you telling me <laughs> a company who makes something wants the money for it?
0: It's so crazy, but Whoa. I think that might be what we're looking at here.
3: This podcast has
2: opened my eyes. <laughs> I was Every also, week it does, I think. I was also, since... <laughs> <laughs> I was also wondering, since you brought it up, what would you would pay for the world's last Choco Taco, if Uh, not $150? Oh, this is a good story. story.
0: I'm glad you brought this up, Andy, because I found a Choco Taco over the weekend, and I had never had one before. And we were at the beach, and the snack shack at the beach had some Choco Tacos, and uh, they were just at like regular $2 price or whatever. So my husband and I bought two of the last Choco Tacos on Earth uh, for... For uh, the average price of two dollars, and that was paying too much, because those are terrible. Really? Yeah, and I was not expecting to think that or say that, but it like what? Oh, Ooh, I,
3: producer Alex this is, is a hot not take apparently in you. the studio. Yeah,
0: um, I'm getting some glares from the production side.
3: Anna's camera may have just shut off. <laughs>
0: But this
2: podcast is over.
0: Maybe they were old. I don't know. Because uh, because no one cared about the chaco Taco until they said they were going to stop making it. So I think they've been in there for like two years.
2: That could be <laughs> just at
0: the bottom of the cooler. They were just like super soggy shell and like it just was not very good.
2: I think I may have had one in my life. And that was probably, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, there's just always you see it and they're like, wow, that looks amazing. And then you see the drumstick are like, oh, yeah.
0: Drumsticks are far yes. superior, yeah. and it's like basically the same product, except the drumstick is just much better. Yeah. So that's my
2: take. Uh, we should have organized this beforehand, but is there, a, is there an adver, advertisement read here?
0: Uh, before we move on to In Case You Missed It, there is, yes. Oh. So um, so now... Before we,
1: we get to In Case You Missed It...
0: We have another word from our sponsor, Red Zone.
1: Manufacturers are facing extraordinary challenges today. With labor shortages, supply chain disruptions, and a changing workforce, complex industrial technology doesn't cut it on the front line. What's needed is a new way of working that will not only meet throughput goals, but change the shop floor culture to one of winning, where every worker feels they play a part in achieving the company's goals for success. What's needed is RedZone, the connected workforce solution.
0: All right. Red Zones Connected Workforce Software Solution enables manufacturers to empower frontline teams in production, maintenance and quality to contribute their full potential and achieve company goals around productivity and throughput. Red Zone Software enables manufacturers big and small to boost their plants, productivity, increase employee engagement and lower turnover. Thanks, Red Zone. All right. We're going to move on to in case you missed it. And I think we should start with Andy.
2: All right. These are uh, these are some stories that didn't get uh, up into the top five of our rankings that we still uh, still thought were worthy of, uh, of sharing with our audience here. Um, this story is about a company called, uh, oh, I should have looked up how to pronounce this, Esri, Esri? Esri. Yeah, like it. Uh, a digital mapping and analytics company in Redlands, California, in Silicon Valley. I don't know if that's right either. It might be done in Southern California. It's in California. Yeah. Here we there go. go. Uh, The company this week entered into an agreement with the U.S. Department of Labor to resolve allegations that it paid 176 female employees less than their male counterparts in 2017. Uh, According to the department, the company systematically discriminated against 143 female software development engineers and 33 female quality assurance engineers. The company agreed to pay $2.3 million in back wages and interest to those affected employees. Uh, the company will make uh, some of the standard changes in response to those violations, better training, program reviews, but the only reason that they were caught was because the company is a federal contractor. Uh, they are prohibited from discriminating against in employment decisions based on race, color, religion, sex, sexual orientation, gender, identity, or national origin. Uh, the DOL's Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs recently launched the class member locator to identify applicants or workers who may be entitled to monetary relief and or consideration for job placement. Um, So, I I mean, I don't have a ton to add to this story here, yeah. other than that it's not great. Um, I was curious about I've been seeing more calls uh, just kind of out there in the in the ether. I'm on the Internet probably too much, but calls for. Salary transparency, whereas mm-hmm. within companies you disclose what everybody makes and uh, I'm not entirely sure where I fall on it. It'd probably do more good than harm, but I was wondering what you guys think about that in the wake of stories like this.
3: I mean, it's. It, it goes without saying like this is frustrating to see, obviously, um, with three daughters entering the workforce, the professional workforce in the next five years, 10 years, um, <laughs> depending on how college goes. Um, <laughs> you don't, you don't want to see stuff like this. Uh, but what is encouraging is that the company is looking to make good on it. Um, it it's frustrating they had to go before a federal monitor, uh, moderator and everything else to get to this number, but they're doing it and they're trying to make good. And hopefully this establishes sort of a benchmark for others. To see this, realize I've never understood how this begins in the first place. I guess how do you how do you see two people coming in, one's male, one's female, and just assume you can automatically lowball the female? I've never. I guess I just maybe I'm naive. I, I just never understood I how the that idea, even starts.
2: I think the idea is you you tend to just kind of naturally give preferential treatment to people who you're familiar with their experiences. Maybe they that look, that look like you were so guys
3: <laughs> hiring guys. So you just pay them mm-hmm. more. I, yeah. mean,
2: that, yeah, I mean, that's that, I mean, that could be ac- across the board for all, all sorts of wage disparity or hiring disparity issues. Yeah. And I
3: mean, we, I'm always the one who says we want government out of our business and, and should not be involved so much, but then you see stuff like this and it's like, geez, do it right. And then they don't have to get involved, mm-hmm. you know?
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think this can be hard to prove because there's a lot that companies can say around like, oh, experience and and this is why we selected the salary, but they use the word systematically here and it, it looks like they were able to prove this, um, you know, pretty resoundingly. Uh, so that means, yeah, somebody is, whether they believe they are doing it or not. They uh, were. Uh, they were, Yeah. But I think you're right, Andy. I think that there's people in positions of power and they just um, – they have too much flexibility on this stuff and they, they, they give a wage It's probably of, not
2: even malicious. It's just no, natural.
0: Some people I think in the back of their mind um, non-maliciously just assume that the male is the breadwinner and they should be making more money because it's a family wage and then the, the woman's income is secondary or whatever. And obviously we know that that's um, you know, pretty egregious but – Uh, it, it still happens. Mm -hmm. So gross, gross. And we hate it. Knock it off. Esri. It was a good guess that it was in Silicon Valley. It's an analytics company. I think you can guess that it's in Silicon Valley, right? I don't know. (sighs) I I was thinking of,
2: I was thinking of Redwood city, which I know is in Silicon Valley, but I don't know about Redlands. I think that might be elsewhere. Are we going to find out here? I have the internet. All right.
0: (laughs) At all times. Okay. San Bernardino no, County. It was
2: Southern California. San Bernardino County. Near ish near ish Los Angeles. And yep. by that we mean three hours drive. Yeah. Probably. It's three got hours a, drive to get twenty miles.
0: It's got a country in its <laughs> suites and it's got a Home Depot.
2: Sounds awesome. And, and this company that discriminates against women. And
0: this company that discriminates against women.
2: Used to. <laughs> Allegedly. Hopefully.
0: Yeah. Um all right. Well I have uh and in case you missed it that I, I'm hoping no one missed because it was too hilarious. Too good. But if you did uh, Purina is planning to open a cat food inspired restaurant. Yes, you heard that right. I know that this is purely marketing, but I picked this story because it was too hilarious to not talk about. So Purina has announced a new restaurant concept that's inspired by its fancy feast brand of wet cat food. <laughs> oh, I said wet cat food. <laughs> Titled Gatto Bianco by Fancy Feast, it opens on August 11th for two nights only in Brooklyn. Uh, guests will enjoy a tasting menu that takes its inspiration from a new line of Fancy Feast dishes called Medley's. So probably Medley's, I think, is just like a bunch of junk mixed together is what, what a medley is. Uh, according to a recent press release, the menu was developed by the cat food brand's in-house chef, Amanda Hasner, and acclaimed restaurateur Cesar Casella. So Hasner says that Gatto Bianco's dishes help cat owners understand how their cats experience food from flavor to texture to form in a way that only fancy feast can. Ooh. Uh, it says that it hopes to share with cat lovers, the delight that it brings to felines with every meal. And I know I'm falling right into their trap by talking about this, but the story was like catnip to me. It was too funny, but I've said this before. Like I'm really having fun with the, um, the marketing that has developed as a result of social media and trending and viral campaigns. I mean, we saw a job application campaign soliciting a chief was like a taco officer or something. Or uh, we saw like a, a dog beer tester, um, a chief donut maker, which was like somebody they wanted to uh, drive cars around in circles. Yeah, Dodge, just, Dodge, yeah. Dodge, yeah. Um, and I just think it's fun that um when companies are taking a lighter approach, um and taking a lighter look at their business and the marketing campaigns that are kind of taking a viral concept uh, that's weird and it, it works. I don't know. I mean, it's absolutely revolting this restaurant Thank concept. You.
3: Like, you brought it back. I was a yeah. little worried there. No, yeah. I like
0: don't want to be inside the restaurant. <laughs> I want to laugh at it from the outside and just um. You know even food that's like reminiscent of canned cat food is just like horrifying, but they know that right you you know that they know that they're poking fun, they're just having fun and uh, do we i uh. yes, because if they thought people really wanted to eat that food, they would do more i don't know this is a pop up restaurant with like uh they're they're taking like four tables a night for two nights. I mean it's like sixteen people will eat there. It's not a real thing, it's just a pretend. Flimsy marketing campaign, but it's funny. I don't know. We made the video that we made had this really weird cat in it, and the cat's face just looks so happy about <laughs> this, and it made me happy. I don't know. I'm not even really a cat person, but that just the whole thing made me laugh.
2: So. One of the things I think they have three dishes or small plates or whatever we're calling it. Um, small plates. <laughs> a couple of them looked acceptable. The main course looked absolutely horrifying. It's just like chopped. It probably up tastes good because they're.
0: With like some peas in it or something? It looks,
2: yeah, it looks like British food and also cat food.
3: I want nothing inspired by pet food. And don't talk about texture. If you're a cat food maker, it's disgusting. Like
0: you need to know what your cat is getting in terms of texture. I
3: get a pretty good feel when you look at it and it plops out into the bowl and And they go nuts for it. It's like,
0: And like mm. the the gelatinous like finish.
2: Do you think they're worried about people showing up and behaving like their cats when they show up to eat, like Should showing they? up an hour hour early for their reservation and screaming? You just start circling the table. Well, because mm-hmm.
0: you know that the people who are like, "Yes, I need to be there," um, are really cat people, yeah. <laughs> like real, real cat people. <laughs> I don't,
1: yeah. Jeff. I, I hope I you enjoy. This. This I is... hope you
0: enjoy your dinner next week at Gatto Bianco by Fancy Feast.
3: Where else were Brooklyn, could you open this pop-up restaurant? You, nowhere. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah. yeah, just clarifying. So mine, In Case You Missed It had nothing to do with cat food. Too bad. It is a story about the um, National Labor Relations Board telling some mine workers in Alabama that they need to pay their coal company over $13 million effectively in restitution for going on strike. So basically, the story starts in 2015. This coal plant uh, was owned by Walter Energy. It was sold to a different company called Warrior Met the facility was, the business was in dire straits. The workers made a bunch of concessions in terms of pay, healthcare benefits, et cetera. Over the course of time, warrior met, did a good job in bringing this thing back. Um, they were able to, um, they saved the company, the, the What the employers did save the company about $1.1 billion over the past five years. And since 2017, Warrior Med has paid over $1.5 billion in dividends to its shareholders. And its CEO is getting about $4 million a year. So basically, the company got back on its feet. The workers are like, hey, remember us? Mm-hmm. And the company said, no, we got a deal in place. We're not giving you any more. They went on strike a little bit more than a year ago. And in the course of going on strike... Basically, they had some overenthusiastic protest or uh, picket line uh, folks. They damaged some things, did some bad stuff. They damaged some vehicles. They actually damaged some pipelines and some other infrastructure at the facility. They were wrong, okay? No doubt about that. They went back to Warrior Men and said, look, we will concede the fact that we screwed up here and that we owe you some money for restitution on these things. They went to the NLRB. The NLRB came back and said they owed them $13 million Because in addition to the things that were ruined, they also wanted $12.8 million in lost revenue that the plant experienced while the workers were on strike. Guess what? The union didn't really care for this. Um, They said it's like 33 times more than they anticipated the NLRB coming back to them with. So basically they didn't see why they would be responsible for going on strike and being responsible then for the revenues that was lost as a result. This is sort of unprecedented for the NLRB to make this type of ruling. And I think it could set a really interesting precedent if companies can get restitution for basically revenue once workers go on strike. We're talking about a coal plant here too. So it's also an industry that's already kind of under the gun uh, from a regulatory perspective, from a labor management perspective, from an employee treatment perspective. So again, these workers, Really made a lot of concessions, helped the company get back on their feet, went on strike to get those things back. And now the company's asking for basically $13 million to make up for all the revenue they've lost in the past year. Um, For the NLRB to come out with that judgment was shocking to everybody. And like I said, I think it just sends a really interesting precedent. And where does this stop? Because they didn't offer a lot of depth in terms of why. Mm -hmm. This was just basically the union said, we know we owe these guys some stuff. The company said, yeah, you owe us this much, and the NLRB agreed with them.
0: So do you know, did they have a no strike clause in their contract? No. That's crazy. So, no. so if you quit your job, can someone come after you and say, like, uh, we lost revenue because you quit and we had to replace you and we, were down, we had downtime or whatever? I mean, to your where point, like, end? where does it end? Yeah. That's, That's outrageous.
3: Yeah, pretty crazy. And, again, to see how this all kind of pans out, again, these workers have been, excuse me, <clears throat> on strike for more than a year. So it seems like Warrior Met is digging their heels in because even though they lost revenue, they still had huge earnings last year. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, this is going to be an interesting one to watch again, just from seeing how it impacts other labor union negotiations and how much the NLRB is involved.
2: As though workers don't risk enough by going on strike in the first place, you know, right. and now they have this to deal with.
3: Well, and, and you know, I typically I'm kind of straight down the middle on a lot of these, but man, these workers gave up a ton. 1.5 billion in revenue, or excuse me, 1.1 billion in benefits.
0: Uh huh.
3: They just want back what they had because the company's back on its feet. And yeah. so, kind of a disappointing um, situation there.
0: Yeah. Well, and it, you know, you think like, too, you're a coal company. So, you don't really run the risk of like bad public PR because nobody knows where their coal <laughs> comes from. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that. what is it? How does it risk their brand? It really doesn't. So, they yeah, might yeah. as well be aggressive if they're going to, but. Um, You know, like you said, risk, Uh, these, these workers already put themselves out there and then, you know, also they work in coal mines. That's like a very dangerous job. Like people should be able to not do that if they don't want to.
3: They, basically the counter offer was a dollar and a half an hour raise for a company that's made, um, seen their stock prices increase by over 250% over the last two years. So, wow. Yeah. So, well,
0: thanks for bringing that one <laughs> yeah. up. Ended I up mean, on really, a, like on
2: a positive note. We right? so, should have done the cat food thing last.
0: Yeah, we should have closed with cat food, so you could sleep sleep on that tonight, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> cat food, <laughs>
3: <laughs> better than coal mines.
0: <laughs> so uh, that's that's about it. We have uh, time for some final thoughts. I think, um, Andy, do you have anything you want to? put out into the world before we go today?
2: Um, I don't know if it's uh, it's a supply chain issue or what, but my mechanic is having some real trouble getting the right <laughs> part for my car. It's been like a month with this thing. I would just I would either one, like my car. Actually, I'd like two things in concert. One, I'd like my car back. Two, I would <laughs> like reliable public transit because I can't go anywhere. I need to borrow my wife's car for everything. Um, so um, that is my complaint for do this have, week. Do you have to go in her purse to get her keys? No, we. She hangs oh. it on on the the moose hook outside yeah. the garage door because that would be the worst part of that whole thing for me. Yeah,
3: my wife will say that all the time. it's in my purse. I'm like, I do
2: not want to go in there. There are seven. Anything. There are seven pockets, and I'll pick. inevitably pick the last one.
0: No one, every man in the world, when you say it's in my purse, hands you your purse. Yes. What what is the big? It deal? is
3: the most. I don't know. We don't know
0: do where stuff gonna goes. Happen? Like you're gonna, your hands gonna get bitten off. We don't there, know where or?
2: stuff goes. It's the whole thing.
0: Oh my god, ridiculous.
3: <laughs> now uh, like a cat food restaurant.
0: Uh, no, that I can get behind. Yeah, this okay. is ridiculous.
2: Well, this good pers- luck, man. Jeez. Hopefully, hopefully next week. Yeah. Knock on wood, or whatever this is. Yeah,
0: yeah. Knock on this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my final thought this week is that I know that I was pretty bullish last week about winning the lottery. Um, that turns out did not happen. So I'll be here for a while. <laughs> Pretty excited Hooray! about
3: that! Yay! <laughs> um, couple final thoughts. First of all, um, I've got two of my daughters having birthdays. One today, one, or that we're recording. The other on Monday. So when you hear this, uh, just think of me when you're having a drink or saying your prayers, because I will have a 19, 17, and 16 year old daughters. That's a lot of feelings, folks. Just so you know. Um, but happy birthday to all of them. They're wonderful, and um, have some good times this weekend. The other thing is, I've been listening, I was talking to this, I know I've been talking to everybody in the office about this, but when I grew up, I was really into wrestling, like from probably, I don't know, eight to 14, super into it. Then I got into it again, kind of when I was in college with Stone Cold, Steve Austin and all that. And now a lot of these guys have podcasts and they are fascinating when they talk about stuff behind the the business and all that kind of stuff. Um, Really interesting. So two I would highly recommend is, oh, you didn't know? By the road dog, <laughs> Brian James. And also, My World with Jeff Jarrett. Those are two really interesting. If you're into wrestling at all, I'd highly recommend those two podcasts. When you're not listening to this one,
0: yeah, this, this one, one first, prioritize.
3: Then maybe the wrestling stuff. Learn something, then
2: be entertained. Exactly, Andy. Uh, Priorities. Learn
0: and be entertained, then be only
2: entertained. Yes. We'll, we'll workshop it. We'll get that right.
0: <laughs> well, that's our tagline. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Do we have trivia this week or are we still taking a... No,
3: and you know, I kind of, thinking back to what David said, it's not about the type of question. I want to come up with stuff that you can't just Google and find the answer to. Okay. Kind of takes away from it. So that's what I'm still working on. You just need more time. Wow. Sorry.
0: (laughs) I'm just asking. I do. I
3: need a little more time. Okay. Man, so demanding.
0: It just seemed a little defensive, that's all. I'm working really hard on it, okay? All right, Jeff forget it forget I said anything whatever please make sure to like subscribe share the podcast Um, and again to email us you can reach us at Andy, Anna, or jeff at in.com or if you want to troll david for him not being here that's david at in.com email the podcast in the subject line Uh, again you can subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters to get the podcast in your inbox as soon as it goes out so look for that All right. Thanks, everybody. Today, uh, we appreciate you joining us. And that's the Today in Manufacturing podcast. We'll see you next week.
1: Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.